How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sidetrack Podcast, episode 168. 68. Ooh, we're one away, Zeke. What, what episode was it that I got really excited that we were several episodes away from 169? Like 162 or something? Like yeah, that? I know. And then the next several episodes, I just forgot. I yeah. feigned excitement. It was... You just get excited occasionally for... the well, you know that number. That number, and it's it's around the corner, so it's very yes. excited. Are, Are you, you excited, gonna... Zeke, about the film we're going to do for one sixty nine? I'm very excited for that. Mm, very good. But that's next week, Jake. I know we're jumping way ahead. Yeah, we've got so much to talk about. In the meantime, absolutely, one hundred percent. Jake, mm. do you have a trivia fact from the film of the week? I do. So of course this week we're talking about Coda, Best Picture winner. Best Picture winner. No, wow. We're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, and, of course, we talk about the Oscar results and Best Picture and, and obviously, Will Smith's slap. And all we talked about all that last week. So you can yep. go back and listen to it then. But, of course, we were like, well, let's actually sit down and talk about Coda for this week. So yeah, we're well, it's do. nice to see someone will. Exactly. And the fact that it won Best Picture is not really interesting well, for, for many, many reasons, but the fact that it is actually the first streamer or the first film that is primarily distributed for streaming to win Best Picture. And as much as Netflix... We're trying very, very, very hard the last few years to be this winner. You know, Netflix produced a Best Picture winner. They still haven't done it. It wasn't Roma. It wasn't Marriage Story. It wasn't The Irishman. It wasn't Mank. It wasn't any of these films. It went to Apple TV Plus's film. <laughs> and if you oh, listen to the show, you can arguably say that... Uh, we don't. We're not the biggest fans of the Apple TV uh, interface. No, I was just so, reflecting on this. I cannot for the life of me remember which episode. Well, it must have been when Apple first started. It was probably close to the On the Rocks episode, right? Oh yeah, that's. I guess it was, or even before that. No, you're right because we saw On the Rocks well before we actually played with Disney mm-hmm. Plus, and it was around the time when I was finally watching like Wolf Walkers and things like that. So it was a bit, It was a little over a year ago, I reckon. When I first got it, I just trashed it, trashed the service. I'm like, there's no search functionality. It's a nightmare to get through. It has the most annoying two-step authentication ever. And it's only original content. Unlike virtually every other streamer, including Paramount Plus, has random things from walks of life and Apple assistance. Yes. We've trashed it endlessly. (laughs) But here it is in the lead of the Best Picture Race. uh, I'm not a fan (laughs) of the 50-second... We're Apple TV intro to every movie. Oh my god, yeah. You have to skip ads over and over again. Yeah, well you're just like, what am I, on a plane? Like, you're trying to... <laughs> do you know how planes do that with their in-flight movies? Have the first five minutes are just like advertisements related to the airline. Right. I mean, yeah. I haven't been in a plane in a long time, but I trust you. Yeah. I trust you, Judge. You've been, you've been in a plane much more recently than I have. This but, is yeah. fair. Yeah, this but, is fair. But yeah, trust you. Well... What about you? What's your fun fact? Um, like? Well, mine's going to center around the... Uh, sort of the star and the um, only speaking member of the family, uh, mm. played by Amelia Jones, Ruby, uh, who spent nine months learning American Sign Language, having singing lessons, and learning how to operate a fisher fishing trawler. That's a lot of preparation for okay. one role. <laughs> There's like say, not yeah. a single... I would assume out of those three, obviously, it's like, oh, well, surely she's just a singer. Because yes, I can't recount... Exactly. Um, any other film I've seen um, Amelia Jones in. So, um, yeah, obviously, you know, we'd have to take a quick dive into IMDb. Oh, well, she's, in, she's in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films a while back. Okay. 
But um, other I would than assume that, that's not... the fifth one, maybe. Maybe twenty eleven. That might be the fourth one on Stranger Tides. I think that might be the fourth. That one. is the fourth one. I'm not a. Don't quote me on a. Um, on Pirates yeah, of the Caribbean. The it's one. the fourth one. Okay. Um, yeah, no, but that's a lot of prep. That um, is, would like you said, you would think that okay, well, the the, the net they have to cast would be the no singing. fishing no fishing pun intended oh yeah no fishing pun intended <laughs> would be the singing exactly it's like what she can as long as she can sing it's like okay well she can learn sign language she can learn how to fish singing you can't really i mean you obviously you can hone your craft and your skill but you know in this regard you want to cast someone who sort of has an innate talent mm. from the get-go so that's that's pretty surprising to me yeah. But, yeah well we'll dive into it a little bit more in detail that's true in the second half of the show Jake, mm, obviously being me. a very contemporary release, this film is yes. not behind me on the 1100 films to watch uh, before you cark it. So <laughs> That's exactly what it says on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, would you add this to your 1100 list? Um, I kind of went back and forth on this for a little bit, and in particular because well, a few reasons, but number one being that this is actually a remake of a French film from several years earlier, which I have seen in the last week so I've now seen both the 2014 mm-hmm. French version and the much more contemporary uh, American version Coda um, I would probably say yes um, purely because one of the main differences between those two is that this film goes much further into um, actually representing um, people who's you know who sign language and in particular the cast the majority of the cast in this film actually are deaf which cannot be the same said for the previous film which is called the Belair family or La Family Belair depending on the French Aussie release mm-hmm. that you're watching I actually rented that for 99 cents on YouTube there you go very cheap so you should actually go ahead and jump on that and I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk about the differences later um, but I would probably say yes for that reason and maybe that reason alone is that representation sure what about you no <laughs> okay fair enough um, no there are actually and I'll talk about, elaborate a little bit more sure. why not in the second half of the show. Um, I think this film has a place in cinema and, and even like cinema, like literacy and, and theory. Um, I think it really does explore that cinema of the other sort of undertone, you know, underpinnings. Yeah. Um, it's very good in terms of when you're considering, you know, disability cinema and the discussions and ex- explorations into those worlds. But uh, I think it can be done better. And I think mm. in some extents, even films, though not directly talking about it, handle the discussion of, of deafness mm. uh, cre- in a more creative way and a nuanced way and actually in a more emotionally impactful way. Okay. This, But I'll, I'll dive into my, my yeah, rationale yeah, a little later I totally get on. what you mean in terms of creative ways. Yeah, of how to go about it, but you're right. We'll, we'll get into that obviously. It's it's funny. I like the segment of the show, but it is sort of like for films like this where we need to elaborate our thoughts very clearly and very carefully. It's hard to just be like yes or no on the poster, but we'll explain in thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do like the segment. We should, we'll definitely keep the segment. Have you been watching anything in the last week's week? Oh, I finished Succession. Oh baby! So I guess it's the only. I have obviously, session. for context of my my career context, I'm yes. in a very big crunch time. A lot of assessments, two exams. I'm actually You're between exams. In between them right now. So this will be straight out the door home and just crunching until 
the wee hours of the morning. Yeah. Um, not Fair not enough. the end of the world, but what can you do? Um, yeah. Well, how, are you excited about Succession? Where we're going from here? Season four is greenlit. They, I guess they're writing it now. I'm not sure if they're shooting it, but I wouldn't surprise me why season four is greenlit. There's a yeah. lot left to left to change. Uh, it's an interesting way to finish because mm. uh, obviously it's only nine episodes. I think the other two seasons are ten. Yeah, I think it was a COVID thing. So when slightly I f- less episodes. When I f- and what I like, you know, we we were talking about last week how, um how they they really do just sort of shoot episodes and if something's happened in in life mm. they just sort of run with it yeah. we, we almost have that business authenticity that life does not these plots do not wait on um like business like the, obviously the idea is everything keeps moving everything's constantly in motion uh, in motion yeah. and the idea to apply that logic to your cast almost have that method acting methodology to it mm. that you know, if, if like you said, in that episode where Connor's arm's broken, um, yeah. which he just broke in real life, and no, like, they, they integrated anyway. it into the episode. Yeah. He fell off his horse, you know. It's, like, really clever. There's that moment when, uh, <laughs> you know, when Frank and, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name, the other sort of crony. Yeah, I know guy. who you're talking about. I'm and they were Stephen both on. Stephen slap us both right now. Um, they're, like, his favourite characters. <laughs> um, they're both on, like, Zoom, which I can only assume is maybe they got covid and they just became oh, right, because they they're intricate to those final that final or last two episodes, but yep. they're always by phone or yep. they're always on the the Zoom meeting, and I'm just like they probably got COVID, and they actually probably <laughs> just were like ah you they're just know, in different yeah. areas doing business deals. Like the fact that they integrated that plot wise, I wouldn't be surprised if they had COVID scares or stuff, or they couldn't, sure, yeah. or because they were a bit older, maybe they didn't want to be on set like for health and safety reasons or something like that. Right. I love the realism to that. Like, I do. I think it's really cool. Um, it was a good season. It was a good season. Probably not my favourite. I think season two is probably my favourite season. Wow, yeah. Um, I mean, I think season three ends, like, incredibly strong. Like, yeah. that last... Big moment I mean, for those Tom. Last few scenes, big moment for Tom. Big moment for Tom. I'm telling you, man, Tom's fighting back. <laughs> I like it, too. I like his sort of, like, packed with Greg, and you think that they're just going to jump on... Um, you know, shivs like shivs back and yeah. then ends up being, I don't know, like sort of going to pit them against each other. Which... Yeah. Oh, it's going to be interesting. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't like caught up yet, but that, that second to last episode, the very last shot that infers maybe a character might potentially die between this episode and the next, like that was that whole week of waiting. What, like what's going to happen was, <laughs> could he actually die? Could yeah. this really happen? Yeah. We, that was a crazy week. Um, and it's a so good, it's a really good show. It was a strong season. Yeah. Um, I have enjoyed it. Um, it's sort of, you know, it probably deserved the, the recognition it got. Um, it's going to be interesting. I don't want this show to, I'm sort of, you know, it's like why I still, and I'm still holding true with like, oh, I think Westworld's still probably a cut above this is Westworld's now into its going into its fourth season and its last season and it's definably saying it's its right, last season. Okay. Interesting. I don't want this show to overstay its welcome. I think this show should maybe have five seasons. That's it. Yeah, I'm wondering because I thought the same thing. Not necessarily that I want it to end anytime soon, but with Succession, like, what is the end goal? Because especially the end of season three, in terms of what what's in, what it infers about the leadership of the company. Mm. And the decisions that have been made are so, like, monumental 
to the goal of the majority of the characters in the show, which is to become the successor of this company. Yeah. And the decisions that Logan in particular are making in that very, in the most recent episode, that shifts the entire dynamic. Like season four, it's like, what in the world is going to happen now? This is incredible. So I feel like that's a big sort of midpoint mm. shift that could, it's very similar to Better Call Saul, which I, you know, I'm still love. I'm still rewatching. It's incredible. There is a very particular death that happens at the end of season three, which, you know, there's going to be six seasons. So it's a perfect midpoint mm. to have this shocking, surprising death in that show that completely changes the series. That when I look back at Better Call Saul now, there's pre this moment and then post this moment happening. And I think that could be the same for Succession with the end of the third season. Mm. So I could see it, this being like a big shift in how the narrative flows. Yeah. But I agree with you. We need to find, okay, where is this all leading towards? And let's, well, let's figure out when that is. It inherently is deposing Logan. And I think what is interesting is every season has had a moment in it in which Logan is showing his age or his frailty. I mean, yes. it was first season, it's the hemorrhage in the first episode, you know, the brain hemorrhage. The The second season, it is, you know, sort of his archaic viewpoints on, like, the sex scandal on the cruises, that yeah. he let all of that happen. In this season, he has a UTI infection that yeah. completely nearly jeopardizes <laughs> their shareholder. He yeah. is vulnerable, and we see po- moments of him being incredibly vulnerable it's you know it's obviously like eluded by the 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 kids um that he's having it off with his secretary who's like 60 years younger than him oh those scenes Um, are so funny um and yeah (laughs) i I still love how the show manages to like integrate humor into um and really what it's doing with that humor (laughs) is it's alienating these characters so they become there's such a foreign concept to us that it becomes engaging because we really feel like we're looking at an aspect of life that doesn't make they're not trying to make them inherently relatable we're really just rooting for the least worst person <laughs> um in which we're starting to see that romans probably but then roman like they've all got reasons for why they should be the successor well the thing but, is like when we we start rooting for roman but then he himself becomes so cocky that he starts doing things that make us question and also echo echo Logan's like ideologies, you know, yeah. these these ideologies we're trying to get rid of. Um, I mean, we are. we like the underdogs in these situations where, yeah, they're all billionaires still, but it's like we we look to the underdogs and we feel bad when they lose, but then when they start to win, mm. it affects their personality too like, much that we start to lose interest in it. It's so fascinating. Kendall's righteous, but it like like, but he's also like self absorbed and yeah. um and and as Logan points out, completely hypocritical. Yeah. And it's, yeah, but then, again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's like that moment where there's like a coming together in that last episode of, all right, if we work together, we're going to take this down. It's such a fantastic moment, and it still fails. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, he, he really is the unkillable king, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think what I like about that is it's sort of like it has that Breaking Bad aspect of Walt doesn't get to the top of the mountain straight right. away. In fact, he... Often has to, time. and he often has to put himself in in life or death situations to get just that next rung higher. I mean, when we think about the way Breaking Bad escalates, it's like the first major villain is this kind of low time drug it's dealer, crazy and he's eight. crazy eight, <laughs> and it's like, and then we go from that, and we like, oh, we thought that was pretty full on, and they deal with that whole thing of him killing for the first time, and, yep. 
and it's still not directly killing. It's sort of just like that soft. You're still uh, making excuses for up until like the, even by the end of the third season, you're still like, oh well, you know well, that the was first defending time, the first, Jesse, and you make these it, excuses. And that's why the, the the fact that you know when Jesse kills Gail, you're just like, yeah. oh my god, that was such a huge thing, and it's like the only time Jesse ever kills. Oh no, that's not true. That is not true. He kills Todd. Yes. But that also makes plenty sense why he wants to kill Todd by the end yeah, of the series. And it, but it's sort of like one of those things that is, is truly fascinating that, um, you know, we see that like that incremental thing. And the same sort of thing's happening in Succession. It's like every season I feel like they're chipping a little bit more away at, at Logan and making him more and more vulnerable mm-hmm. for that final. Like, you know, there are moments, that, especially in that third season, where Logan's really like, oh... I don't know how much longer I can do this. Like, he feels like he's a bit on the ropes. Yeah. Like, and he, like, occasionally consoles, like, it, and and kind of gives that little bit of, of leeway to one of his kids, whether it's Roman or whether it's it's Shiv, where he's like, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. Yeah. And we, you know, if, is and then we have that moment where we start to buy into he's, oh, he's this old yeah. man. Yeah. But it, part of it is him feigning it just to sort of draw, play, prey on that emotional... Yeah side too but it, it goes back to a scene very like the fourth episode very early on when i think jerry's telling him something and asks does the kids know and he's like oh like should they know is that like how would that play and it's like he's just constantly thinking on this like yeah fourth dimensional level of you know beyond the emotion of of telling your kids news i can't remember what it was exactly but i reckon what's the play i reckon the show will end when he is deposed and we actually do have that ruler. And the show will end with whoever that success- successor is. It's probably going to be Shiv. It saying. really is the new Game of Thrones. And I still haven't seen Game of Thrones to this day, but this idea of like this one person, who's going to be the person who sits on that throne? Yeah. I guess, there's a lot it, I of guess that in going Game of Thrones, too. though, it's the futility of that statement. And it's also there are so many different... The one difference is there's so many different people thinking they're the the right and it's constantly changing who's actually mm. on the iron throne which is a little different whereas this is we have one unkillable king that we're trying to kill right um, i see i see i see okay or kill a patriarch and it's sort of like that's what makes it more fascinating because it's great that he doesn't get like how how like honestly if we redid season two and season three imagine if um kendall had succeeded in that vote of no confidence yeah. at the end of season one now, and we the just show? yeah the show just becomes this squabble oh, Logan's trying to regain his power. It's like, no, no, we, we are, this guy is the insurmountable giant. Like, the reality is he's an allegory for what, Rupert Murdoch. It's yeah, like, yeah. Murdoch's not going until Murdoch's dead. Like, yeah. let's be real. Like, his kids will then, you know, maybe divide up. And stuff. But the fact is, it's like, that's why his kids haven't succeeded. You know, Rupert Murdoch's well into his 80s now. Like, yeah. it's... Eventually, this man's going to die. <laughs> and that might be it. Maybe it'll literally drive moment, Logan yeah. to his grave and maybe the final season will be the final, like... Mexican standoff over who yeah. takes what. Imagine if oh, Greg, 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 Greg for the Iron Throne. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna make it happen. I feel like Connor would just be such a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, Connor has a great moment in that most in that that last episode, of season three, where he, he, you know uh, Kendall's going on about like you know he he was the one he was meant to be the one he was the firstborn son and that really pisses Connor off. And I like Connor's speech in that moment. Like, he actually has some agency. Yeah. Although he sort of... <laughs> Loses it. Well, then I flash forward to the scene where he wants to marry... Um, 
Oh God, Willow, Willow, Willow. Yeah, and um, and she's just like, ah, screw it. <laughs> That's what you want to hear when you propose to someone. I love when he oh, asks at brilliant. the end of season, the end of season two, where he says, yeah. oh, "I'll just have a, I'm just asking for a measly hundred billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the loan. This is a small loan. It's a small. You have to drop this presidency crap. He's like, ah, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, it's a great. So, I really want to rewatch that last episode again. It's so good. It's so brilliant. It is a really good. But that's all I have watched in the last week. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I've seen quite a lot this week, actually. Ooh, run us through it. Yeah, so like I said, the Billiard Family, which was the 2014 French version. We'll get into that in a moment. I'll talk about the other three films I saw, much more recent films. I'll start. Let's let's start from the bottom. Let's okay. start because I was going to say this to you off the show, Zeke. I watched simultaneously my least favorite and my new favorite film of 2022 in wow. this past week. Is that my least favorite? I put it below Uncharted. This is how much I disliked The Bubble, the new Judd Patel film. Wow. Yeah. Dude, I don't know what happened here. Like, I'm not like the biggest Judd Patel fan, but, you know, we yeah, like The King of Staten Island. And, yeah, well enough. I mean, the yeah. you know, 40-year-old version, I think it's actually a lot of good stuff in that film. Like, I definitely don't not rate him, you know. But this has to... I don't know what in the world was going on. With the bubble. So the idea is that it's about a group of... It's basically this elongated... And, I mean, and we talk about his, the length of his films. They're mm. always very long. This is at least double the length too long. This should have been like a 15-minute YouTube sketch. Instead, it's a two-plus-hour bloated mess about celebrities trying to make a blockbuster movie in COVID restrictions. That's why it's called The Bubble. And it just goes on and on. On yeah, he does on. have ridiculously long movies. Well, it's so this one is so lazy because it's it falls into that trap that a lot of other comedian directors sort of fall into. Is they're not really with very few exceptions. I'll get into those. There's no comedy being done through the direction or the camera work or the score or the cinematography or anything. It's just oh, let's put famous people in front of the camera and have them riff. Mm. You know, let's get let's get um bloody uh Chris bloody whoever and the Rock. In, in front of a camera and they'll riff for two hours and we'll have a movie and it'll be funny. Like, it falls into that trap of just relying on that. Really? Yeah, and it's so lazy and it's so unfunny. The one time I actually got a genuine laugh is when it, it has, like, a hard cut, like, shot, reverse shot with this guy. He's emoting on screen. They're doing the movie and then it cuts to who's meant to be his wife who, at this point, is, like, away from the production and it's just a dude in this giant green screen tight suit with mm. a wig on and, like, just that harsh cut. I was like, ha! They got a laugh out of me. And it was, like, virtually the only thing I found funny in this entire film. It's uh, The rest of it is just insanely lazy. Just skit after skit after skit of this, like, people joking. And half of them are through Zoom. So it's like, oh, let's get, like, famous people on Zoom. And then, boom, that will, like, cover that. And the green screen looks bad behind them. It's like, what is this? This is a Netflix production? Is this a drink-to-cringe film? Um, or is it just not even funny enough to constitute that? It's just so boring. I was incredibly bored watching this. Oh, it's like this. the death to 20... 20... It, it is very comparable to that um, in the sense that, like, the material itself. Like, I can't tell what Judd Apatow is trying to say with this. At least don't get... A, don't look up. At least you would know what Adam McKay is trying to say. To say you understand it, yeah. what his opinion is as as rough and as in your face as it may be, and it may piss off a lot of people. At least you know what his opinion is. Yeah. Here, I can't tell. It's like half the movie is making fun of TikTok dancers, but then that is also half the movie is just 
like TikTok, Karen yeah. Gillan and bloody Iris Apatow, who just plays the same character she played in Netflix's Love series, doing TikTok dances the entire time to the point where it's like, well, you're making fun of it? Or is like this what the movie is? You know? And, and like, oh, actors, they're bloody, you know, they're posh and they're needy and all of that. But it's like, is that what it's actually trying to say? Because yeah. then the film gets to such a ridiculous point where these actors are being, like, their bloody hands are getting shut off by, or shut off, shot off, Jesus Christ, by snipers. And they're being trapped in their own rooms and their contracts are getting all messed up. So they have to do this thing for years on end, or it feels like years on end. And it's like, well, are you trying to make fun of actors who are sort of, you know, what, what's the word? You know, diva actors and whatnot. Like, I don't get what the message is. So yeah, this um, the bubble drove me insane. Was, it was, I'm sorry, I I, I put it below Uncharted on my rating. That's how wow. That's how upset I was with this bloody film. Um, so all right, let's go. Let's go up into the more positive end. So I mentioned to you off the show, I saw X mm-hmm. in the cinemas, which is a new A24 horror film. It is very much in the in the vein of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And okay. Very like cheap looking horror films. I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think excellent compared to something like The Hills Have Eyes, which is very similar in theory, but I really didn't think yeah. much of that film. Texas Chainsaw Massacre did it for me. It's just like it has that that eerie sense of dread constantly and like the the, the gorilla-ness behind it all I really mm. loved. So X is trying to sort of replicate that by being set in Texas in the 70s and they have like these um, this group of kids who want to make a porno and they, well, they sneak. They, they rent a barn next to this old couple who don't realize that's what they're doing, but that that's what they're doing there is going to shoot this porno um so it is basically a softcore porno film but it's very much aware and self-aware of it being that yeah um but then also you get the slasher element that comes in later i liked it it was a fun time but i didn't take a lot away from it again it's it's just a gigantic homage like i know the texas chainsaw massacre like there's a lot of repetitious use of a tv that's playing the same footage over and over again i was like at first a little like night of the living dead for me the okay. repetitive tvs and um there's like these things where it like cuts but be- between scene transitions it would actually like kind of cut 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 like three times for the next scene and it starts sort of intersecting before we actually cut to the following scene i'm like I don't remember what film that's trying to replicate. It might be like an old film stock effect for like really cheap 16mm films. It also reminded me of the film Triangle, which I think came out in 2009, um, which is a very interesting horror film that sees someone sort of go through this loop that replays in three Mm. points. That's why it's called Triangle. And a lot of times it will like cut, 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 and then it will cut to the next scene. Sort of these rhythmic beats in, Mm -hmm. in threes. Now, I don't think it was trying to replicate Triangle in particular because that film's a lot newer <laughs> than his other examples, but that was the one I, I came to. So, like I said, it was enjoyable. I don't think there was a lot of meat to the bone unless you really love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, all of these other horror if you're a, films. If you're a horror guy. Yeah, exactly. Then you're going to get a huge kick out of this. It's great. But um, for me, I was hoping there was a little bit more to read into. There's elements in there. Mm-hmm. I actually thought it was doing the reverse of the Halloween where it was actually embracing the character's sexualities and the people, the order that people were dying in was the opposite. People who were more reserved and snooty and, you know, kind of away from the sexual lifestyle that these other characters are. Oh, I thought it was doing a bit a subversive. I thought so, but the more deaths that occurred in the order that they occur, I'm like, I don't know if that's what no. it's trying to say. That, that's what I thought at first. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. Can you imagine if they did do that. 
That would be cool. Because there, there is a character who is, um, I'll just say it, she's the boom operator. And throughout the film, she's slowly, you know, watching these sex scenes being filmed. She's obviously right in their faces with the boom. And then the twist, and to be fair, I called it. I actually joked saying, like, she's going to want to get in on this. And sure enough, at the midpoint of the film, she's like, I want to jump in. And it's her boyfriend that's like, no, I don't want you doing that. You know, you're different from these girls. And that's when you start establishing the difference between the sex-positive people, the non-sex-positive people, and who starts dying. Um, so there's interesting things to read into there. Um, there's a nice twist at the end in regards to the identity of the main girl, the, the girl who's on the poster, so that's not really a spoiler mm-hmm. necessarily. There's interesting things in there, but I thought it was totally fine. Like you said, if you're a horror fan, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. It's softcore porn. <laughs> Don't take your mum to see it. I saw people on Facebook t- like taking so selfies inappropriate if you're under the age of 15 to yeah. watch this film. Or even 18. It's even rated 18. R. It's got a hard under R 18. So no one under the age of 18, I'd like to say, on the podcast... I, if you're under the age of 18, do <laughs> very, not watch this. Very good. Well done, Zeke. Um, all right, and I'll start. I'll end with my brand new... Fa- I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You're smart. You're smart, man. Um, my favorite, my new favorite film of 2022 has to be Richard Linklater's Apollo 10 and a Half. Oh, I'm so annoyed I haven't watched this yet. This film is phenomenal. Holy crap. I can't even spoil the realization that... You, there's a point in the film when you realize... Oh, this is what the film's about. Mm. And it's beautiful. It is fantastic. Jack Black doing the voiceover. He is phenomenal. He carries this film. Really? He's exceptional in that. The energy that he brings to it. The energy that the film in general has. Now, for those who don't know, it is a rotoscoped animated film. Richard Linklater has done those in the past. Um, Scanner Darkly. There you go. It's a good one. And what this one, I think Afterlife, I think is part, is it Afterlife? Is that what it's called? I think mm-hmm. it's partly rotoscope that one. But yeah, he's done tons of animation stuff in the past. And this one is centered around a, I guess he's a nine or 10 year old boy. That's why I call it 10 and a half, um, who was selected by NASA in the late sixties to basically um, join what is, they call the Apollo 10 and a half because they accidentally built the space shuttle too small for an adult uh, so that's sort of the the fantastical element of this film, mm-hmm. but like, oh man, I would love to delve into this film because I consider so much of what I love about it to be kind of spoilerish, because there is a moment in this film when you realize, oh, this is what's actually happening, um, and in particular the last maybe thirty minutes, the way they're in a cut between um, like parallel timelines, but what they're actually saying about each other and the connection your brain is making with the events that characters are watching on TV versus the events that are happening, quote-unquote, in real life, mm-hmm. and whether that's all mysterious or not. And I will say the quote. I think it's actually the last quote in the film or the last line where it says, you know how memory works, even if he was asleep, he'll someday think he saw it all. That that line is just like the perfect thumbnail or the perfect, I guess, sentence. Soundbite. Soundbite of, um like, going through this journey that Mr. Richard Linklater has crafted for us beautiful people. He's a beautiful man himself. Um, us beautiful people. And, and just putting a, a little extra... You know what? I'll change it. It's the ellipses. It's the dot, dot, dot at the end of the sentence where you're like, oh... Like, it gets even deeper and deeper. But I just... I love the energy of it. I love the animation. I love the thematics over it. The, I can see people, like, going in with that log line in mind of Apollo 10 and a half. And when they watch the film, they actually realize that the the next title, the Space Age Childhood, that that's the more important line in the title. Getting disappointed by that, I can see that. 
But I loved it. I absolutely so loved uh, it. This year's Mitchell's First the Machines. <laughs> I hope it gets nominated next year for animation. I really do. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. So please, everyone, watch Apollo 10 and Alpha Netflix. It's fantastic. I loved it. Um, cool. So the only other one I saw was uh, The Billia Family, the 2014 version of Coda. So maybe we can just jump right into Coda. No dramas. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? Jake, I just told you what we're watching. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> oh, classic. This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Coda. I want to do this. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? You will be required to have a hearing individual on board at all times. with you for the rest of my life. I've never done anything without my family before. Ruby is an only hearing member of a deaf family from Gloucester, Massachusetts. At 17, she works mornings before school to try and help her parents and her brother keep their fishing business afloat. I wonder if the fishies... <laughs> That's my favourite character in this film, is the fishes. Yep. They get caught. I don't know where that's... I don't know where you're going with that I one. I don't know either. I'm sorry. I'm just going to let you run with it. Yeah. <laughs> don't. We probably Please should interrupt cut, me. probably should cut you off. <laughs> you really should have. Uh, so, now, yeah, so Best Picture winner for the, for this year. Now, I saw this film back in August. I've actually been really excited for this film since I heard about it at Sundance the previous year. So I spent several months being like, I'm really looking forward to seeing Coda. Saw it in August. It was the episode we did with Ricky, actually. Episode one, uh, 136. Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels, you're correct, that I first talked about Coda. I talked about, I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was a little bit of a shame that it took sort of a very Disney-esque route in some of the, the plot points in its presentation, but overall, I liked it. And since winning Best Picture, it sort of turned a green book in my head where, really? This one? Yeah, look, I have to stress, this is not quite, obviously, first time watching it earlier yes. today, but I get the green book comparison, and I do think that it's not a Best Picture, but it's not quite as... Mm. Um. Uh, look, you know, probably would fit relatively in that case. Like, Green Book has like moments of of profound commentary, but it's very fleeting. This one, at least, I think, has a really nice heart to it. Yes, which it definitely has a lot of heart to, to it. Yeah, give probably more positive acclaim to than when than Green Book. Do I think that it's a bit soft? And honestly, at times, very generic and very structured and very traditional. Yeah. I think so. I think there's 
actually this film is I look my first takeaway from it was I think that the second and definitely more so the third act are actually really strong okay and the first act is plagued with very obvious cliches um I think there are I think it honestly the film is for the most part actually played with quite a few cliches which isn't necessarily always a bad thing I think people use cliches mostly in a negative uh, connotation mm. but the difference between an Oscar winner and not an Oscar winner is has this film said something profound and different and I think it explores a world we are, we aren't all aware of and that's a big tick next to it um but it lacks in my opinion it really lacks a character and identity ironically at least a visual mm. character and identity um in its aesthetic and presentation of its story which for the most part is kind of a paint by numbers coming with your age family acceptance film yeah well this is why i think it's such a shame that like look i'm very happy for the crew and everyone involved that you know it's going to get this notoriety and i think i can't remember the percentage but it was like this gigantic uptick in viewership for apple tv plus when it won so this is great and then people like me actually made the effort to go and watch the original french version for 2014 so it's like in terms of exposure it's great it's great that it's getting awards and getting notoriety and people yeah. are watching things but on the same token i'm like it's kind of almost a shame that it did win best picture because now everyone's going to watch it with this expect this higher expectation they wouldn't have otherwise watched it with. And I'm when I watched it, I'm like, oh, this is a Sundance film, and I think the log lines, you know, really clever, and this is really interesting. And I have a friend who actually is a coder herself, and this film is almost like I won't say her journey in high school, but this is a very similar scenario where she's a singer. She was in the music program in high school. Um, I was with the close friends of her, and and both her parents were deaf, and I think. I mean, she has a younger brother. I don't know if he's deaf or not. But from that standpoint, I was like, oh, this is really cool, you know, in terms of, yeah, cinema of the other, mm-hmm. like you said, that representation. Um, I'll be able to see that. And other than the fact that, yeah, like a lot of the s- scenes in the school in particular, very Disney-esque, like the way that she was, like, bullied in school. Was oh, it's so... Like, that is cliche. It's so contrived. And it's like, we're so used to films kind of getting high school nowadays. I agree. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, it, and I, I think that's why the first act very particularly mm. frustrated me. And of course, um, you know, I haven't got the uh, cast list on me, but obviously, a teacher in a coming of age film offers a seminal, pivotal yeah. role in defining and constructing, and kind of, you know, obviously, it's that mentor on the hero's journey. Yeah. We um, literally made character. fun of that last week in Boyhood, <laughs> and it's like, it's sort of like one of those things when he rocks up on the scene, you're just like, okay, yeah, I guess he's. You know, like, they've made him ethnically diverse and, and what's at least implied, um, you know, like, sexual preference diverse, I think. Right. He's definitely uh, he's, more he's eccentric flamboyant. in yeah, this he's version. Yeah, eccentric and flamboyant. Yeah. And the French version, he's a bit more of, a, like, an artiste. Yeah. You know, and, like, you, you see him actively make out with women in the original film. Yeah. So it's, like, it, it's a definitely a different take on that character. But, it, you know, it's, like, you you see that character and the cliche goes, yeah, he's like, oh, it's Woody Harrelson and Paul Rudd. It's like, that's what it is. It's like, that's exactly the role. And I'm sorry, but because we've seen so much of that in the last 10 years, I saw it and I went, oh, okay, now I know where this film's going to go. And it's like, I almost could predict literally, I th- there, 
every moment in this film was predictable to me. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's really cool that it's like what we're trying to show here is we're trying to normalize um, adolescent life through different diverse backgrounds. And I get that. That's a, that's, that's one of the big ticks this film has that we're exploring that, Hey, this adolescent girl suffers the exact same problems that a lot of teenagers have mm. struggles with identity and, yep. and bullying, but it's like the bullying so overtly cliche and very clearly not what students would be bullying her about. Like, well, ex- like when I think of, yeah, like, okay, you have your typical high school movie from maybe 20, 30 years ago. Well, oh, there's the weird girl. He smell, she smells like fish. Let's make fun of her or make fun of her deaf parents. And I can't even imagine what... For example, like my friend from high school, I think the vast majority of people didn't even know she had deaf parents. And they certainly didn't make fun of her for it. Yeah. Like, you're right. It's like the reasons are just strange. It's... Like, yeah. It's like her being introverted is enough. And her being her being self-conscious and judgmental about having deaf parents, that's a fair assessment because it's her. It's her own, like, metacognitive commentary. If she's insecure about this and insecure about her identity, that's very normal for an adolescent child to constantly be critiquing themselves and not coming out of their shell because of that stuff. Her battle with uh, family acceptance because Mm. they can't really understand what singing is, but she's really good at it, that's fair in its own right too. Yeah. Well, that's a great little moment when he's playing on the Tinder... And the mum says, like, well, this is something we can all enjoy. We can't all enjoy the music in your headphones. Like, that's a nice little moment right there that showcases that. But then for every moment like that, you have, like, the, the very typical True. high school teasing. But I'm not going to lie. I even think the family drama in this is very cliche. And mm. it's, like, characters are self-absorbed for really no reason. Like, the fact that they're so obsessed, like, they the over-reliance on her and her, their business, yet the brother is seeking independence and able to run the business himself... Or he believe, that's his belief. And it's sort of like she gets put in this box for no real reason. And the fact that the family can't see that until latter stages of, of the film, I'm sort of like, I feel like there's just drama in here for drama's sake sometimes. Maybe. I mean, I remember when I first saw it, and I should clarify, I didn't actually sit down and rewatch the whole film from start to finish in prep for this podcast. Obviously, the... The 2014 version is like almost an identical plot with little little tweaks here and there. And yeah. then I rewatched like maybe the first 30 minutes and then a few select scenes. Um, but from my memory, I didn't think it was that contrived in the sense that she's what, 16, 17 years old. You know, they've spent that much time as a family relying on her as the only person who, you know, can hear and, and, and speak English to everyone around them. The, the reliance on her makes sense. And eventually. She's going to have to come of age and want her own desires. And that, that yeah. I feel like it's just a family struggling to make that shift. I, I didn't think it was that... I won't no, say not cliche, but jarring. It wasn't that jarring for me. Yeah. I, I do think that the third act in this film is, is its strongest and actually does alleviate and actually start to elicit some really positive emotional responses through very subtle scenes that still support the idea of the code of family exploration mm. that you know, uh, and the concept of singing, but it's like the film doesn't play around with diegetic, non-diegetic that often. No, um, no, it doesn't. It's use of uh, visual codes in the terms, uh, written codes in terms of how it implements subtitles very sporadically and seemingly with little to no motivation why they remove it and then add, add it at points. Oh, it's I think I watched it with just subtitles on for everything. Okay. So I well, wouldn't have noticed So I that. watched 
I watched just the normal, no closed captioning version. Interesting. And there are, there's a scene at the start when they first get off the boat and they're trying to communicate with the dock worker they sell the fish to. That's yeah. there. And then it goes away for like an hour, an hour. And then it comes what? back. Yeah, so like the scenes like with them with the Tinder at the table and stuff like that, there's no subtitles. Really? That, that's no ASL right. subtitle. Well, at least none on my version. Jeez, so okay. I was sort of like, because I sort of saw it as a, as a creative thing that it was like, oh, well, you can sort of understand the gist of the scene because we're commu- like we're obviously we're now trying to fully immerse ourselves in Ruby's uh, position, um, her subjective discourse where she's obviously having to make meaning solely after sign and yeah. a sign much like every language. Some words exist, some words don't exist. Right. You know, um, so okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, when like it's important, and I think it's deliberate in parts, like when the father is describing what's happening in a, what appears to be some form of not sexually transmitted disease, but some sort of sexual well, infection the, yeah, the, yeah, that's, um, that that's has been transmitted between their, in their relationship and she's having to describe it to the doctor. Yeah. I think it's intentionally left out for that comedic effect, but also the awkwardness. See, for me, it was all there, all the subs. Yeah. So I saw the whole conversation. Cause that was part of there's There's a joke in there that you might've missed out then. Because they're trying to describe, like, they have this, like, itchy, burning feeling, like, on his crotch, and she has a very mm. similar thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then one of the things is when the doctor replies, you, two you weeks. Know, two weeks. She jokes. She things. first says, like, oh, you guys have to stop having sex yeah. forever. Okay, so you caught that. Yeah, so okay. I think that it, I think the version I watch is actually, obviously, without, like, full subtitles and closed captioning, is the intended cinematic version. Right. And to be which, fair, the 2014 tr- YouTube rental is the same. Not every sign is, is subtitled. What that's trying to do is it's trying to make it obviously more like a more empathetic viewing for our protagonists. And we're trying to get fully immersed in it. And I, I I can see why they did that. And that didn't bother me that much. It just was the inconsistency. Like either I would like consistency, like either make it completely because I sort of got everything that was going like, for example, when we watch um, earlier in the film when Ruby walks in on her parents arguing and they're yep. having the sign argument, yep. there's no subtitles. So we're, we're fully getting Ruby's, like, just her observing this, like the AS, uh, the American Sign Language. Yeah. And we're just supposed to get it off her reactions. And I, I like, I actually do like that sort of where th- mm. this film is definitely trying for diegetic realism, but because it's plagued with more traditional coming of age cliches or, or or at least structures it doesn't feel as grounded as it could be yeah um i will this so this is actually such a fascinating discussion i didn't even think about because i just had subs on for everything mm-hmm. now my defense as much as i love that idea of like taking the subtitles out and back and in, in terms of character perspective and audience perspective i think for a film like this i remember when the trailer first came out on apple's youtube page and it was all subs automatically. I think it was hard-coded subs. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, it's very much they're having in mind people who are hard of hearing or deaf, um, and this is going to be a situation where they're going to cater for as many people as possible. Um, watching this, and especially from Ruby's perspective, as someone who you know can do can do and read sign language as well mm-hmm. as obviously um, here, as well as here. Uh, my thinking is I'm watching this from her perspective as the audience that I should be able to understand everything and that when they have that argument in sign, yeah. I should understand what they're saying because Ruby understands that. So that would be my argument for there. 
as much as I appreciate that you're right, they're probably playing with that for perspective. But then when I think about these other films, and this is an argument that I made last year when I first saw Coda, is that this is part of the um, English language films of recent that, you know, films like Sound of Metal and The Father that are looking at these, um, you know, stories of disabilities and sort of playing with them in a more unique mm-hmm. way. And now The Father, we've talked about it, goes all in and putting you in the headspace of that character. Yeah. While here, it's the other way around. The Sound of Metal does it a little bit in this, in the sense that we hear well, the sound a, come in and out It a has lot. a balance. And I think... Yeah. This does do it at pivotal moments. Yes, where we I mean re- twice. Where we, right. The two, yeah, the two times with the Coast Guard and then the final uh, concert performance. Yeah, um, where we get the perspective of the mother and the father as they um, sort of observe people around them, or or we see them in their auditory environments. And I think that I'm not fussed by because we're actually trying to emphasize sound. Yes. This not the absence of sound. Whereas, you know, in Sound of Metal, we're, we're actually fully immersed in someone who's losing their hearing. So we mm-hmm. have that altering perspective. Whereas in this, we're actually with someone who's for, fully audibly, you know, yeah, uh, there and, and that it's just surrounded by people that are deaf. And, yeah. and that it's a very, very rare moment when we swap perspectives and they play with the sound in that way. Mm. Yeah. I think I think the earlier stages of the film frustrate me because of, like I said, like these more traditional coming with age stuff and maybe the general um, disrespect that her family has towards her. It's like nuance. I know it's obviously trying to show that they're not like they're obviously not you know, they're, they're undergoing their journey of like being more supportive towards her and they do actually get there in the end. Yeah. Um, I think it just frustrated me that it was so like that just like that that dinner table scene where she gets told for told off for having headphones in yet everyone around her is either on their phones or or like right, doing yeah. their own sort of things. So it was sort of like getting picked on for the sake of picked on. And then it was like when she starts to actually do extracurricular activities, she gets criticized for wanting to do extracurricular activities by the fact being sixteen and they have a fully grown adult son yeah yeah um well they're probably used to the son i'll i'll this is how i'll defend this this leads a little bit into my highlight scene but you know we don't have to worry about that because the son obviously he's more aligned with his parents because he is also deaf and he's probably more in tune with the 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 pathway that they want him to go on in particular with the fishing yeah um as with you know their daughter ruby who is you know, hearing, yeah, and is very clearly maybe not to them immediately the parents, but very clearly wants to pursue a different lifestyle or pursue her you know dream of of singing and music. But this leads into the scene when she asks her mother, you know, do you wish I was deaf? And she kind of goes into this elongated story, but she essentially says, "Yes, I wish you were deaf, because I was you know I feel like that connection's going to be gone if we don't have that." So I feel like the parents are almost, and particularly the mother, almost overemphasizing the relationship they have with Ruby because they're desperately afraid of her in particular being separated from the family. So I can, in terms of the argument between what they already have, she already has an older brother and they would have gone through this whole phase of him. I don't know if they would have gone through that whole phase of him for that reason. That's yeah. my sort of half-assed attempt at maybe no, justifying that. That's fair. I think it's, it is quite a... It's 
yeah, I think it just kind of compounded on the frustrations I had, mostly particularly with the high school coming of age drama stuff, where, like you said, the the Disney esque bullies from the nineteen eighties who are, from, <laughs> yeah, uh, from, really and nice. she's such a non character, like she's a make fun of a distance character, like <laughs> has no plot resonance, no arc, no conclusion, is just pretty much there basically just to introduce Ruby's love interest, right, and who is just a dorky choir boy. So, like, their their love story is not, like, this unattainable romance, like a more traditional high school. It's very pragmatic and real. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, he's hardly a jock sport guy. Right, like, a he's, dreamboat. He's just kind of a dorky choir kid, you know? It's yeah, just sort of like, that's true. I will say, the, when I was watching the French version, I bought it a little more. But like, you know, this, like you know, sexy French boy and he's making out with other girls on the way to the choir class. Yeah. And it's like, so it, it buys into that a little more. And I think the French version overall, like I said, it, it's she not... totally in your league. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny because I, I would say, yes, this coda feels more PG than, than, you know, the Billia family does, which feels a little more of an M rating. It goes into things like, you know, there's a whole subplot about her, um, going on a period for the first time and it's like the, this coda doesn't dare <laughs> go into anything like that because again it's sort of committing to a much you, more light-hearted family friendly you remove film. the sex scene from this film that very small cut to for comedic effect sex oh, yeah. scene yep this film goes to PG yeah I feel like this probably is it's M. PG oh it is just solely I think oh probably that's the thing that's ticked it over its rating but right, you yeah. it's PG-13 like American yeah for exactly sure. well even um was it this film that I was reading that had to fight to get it down to PG-13? Or was it a different... Fi- oh, it might have been The Bubble, maybe. That was- no, Bubble's definitely... I don't remember. I think I was reading something about something, or it could have even been this, the original This film. film has its purpose. Like, I really do think this film is a quintessentially great film for high school students to learn about, solely because of things like production context. And even, like, yeah, like, uh, intertextuality and stuff. Like, from a production context point of view... It's really interesting to see a whole cast that are all like deaf in real life, right? Like, yeah, um, with the exclusion of obviously, like we were saying, like Ruby's character, but the other three, um, sem- you know, seminal family members, yeah, yeah, are all deaf actors, yeah, which is something the original film did not do and <laughs> got a lot of flack for back in the day, yeah, which is really cool for in terms of immersion cinema and and making like these scenes way more real and tangible this film is trying to be real because it sure does not really have a very if if any appealing color palette to it it nearly has next to no cinematic flair in my opinion okay yeah well maybe that even pushes towards that disney feeling of like the lighting's there's not a lot of contrast yeah i'm I'm not gonna lie it felt like a netflix film but it didn't feel like one of those like top tier Netflix film. It felt like one of those. I will say the opening comparatively to the original film, which takes, obviously it's, it's more of a, a dairy farm that that takes place and the, mm. the family are farmers. It has a much more European feel to it. Um, you know, with the, with the, the greens of the grass and everything, mm. a bit more of a farmland. This one obviously plays more with the, obviously it's American, Massachusetts, and it's, it's sort of by the docks, you're in the water. I actually like the way the opening scene Compared to the original, the opening scene is much more cinematic with the flaring camera and you were going around in the boat as the thing. Yeah, like... I just think there's like little to no stylism in it. I just right. think it's so plain. Mm. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was like, there's just like no... It's like 
And it's not the setting that removes that. I mean, like, look, I don't, we don't like 13 Reasons Why, but we do concede that first season does have some real stylistic flair right. in making a... In well, the, a, yeah, making the cinematography throughout is pretty good. Making, the, making a high school visually appealing and such. And I've seen plenty of it, even like what we're talking about, like with Edge of 17 and, and Perks being a wallflower, there is cinematic and stylistic flair there. So it's not like coming of age teenage film family dramas don't aren't capable of, of creating that. And honestly, the setting is quite a unique one. It's a little fishing town. It's quite mm. quaint. It'd be quite beautiful. But even like her like getaway quiet place right. is still kind of plain. Thing. <laughs> that every kind teenager of like, has, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bit nothing. And I'm just sort of like, maybe it's like what makes like adds a bit of dynamicness to sort of films like this is having that sort of visual flair there, especially in moments mm. like the performances and such like that, like right. having that sort of extra, I mean, not even surrealist, like grounding in realism and such, but it's like, because I, I remember distinct visual shots from Sound of Metal. Yeah. Like it had a visual tonality to it. Well, that film sort of was allowed to be more grungy because of that, but I think, but see, I I think Coda had the opportunity to to be a little like, and even just like going by that gorge, like we'll just shoot it. You obviously she well she runs away from school in the middle of the day presumably, but why not have the sun there? Have it like sunrise yeah. or sunset, or I I like try and motivate that a little bit. And I mean, look at if we look at the works of things like Sean Baker and stuff, where we see. Mm these grungier, grosser places, aesthetically not very appealing places, he turns them into aesthetically pleasing places. Sure. When the kids are walking around the swamps in Florida and the, there's like the the, yeah. the sun beaming through, he makes what is what most of us would just walk by and not even think about. Mm. It makes it quite dynamic and gives it character and, and such. And there's I just feel like this film has no has such a plain Jane visual profile and mm. is so heavily reliant on its subject matter and story to carry it over the line. And right. that's where I think... That's why I'm like... I feel like we're going to get more films, and that's fantastic about this topic because mm. of films like this, and we're going to see better films from mm. a similar like ex- exploration of the story because of it. Well, it's interesting because this story in particular, obviously, we talked about the French version and then this version, but they're actually doing a musical stage play of this story, of the story of Coda, which is interesting that this story is resonating, like the specific mm. plot and these characters and the, and the journey that they all go from is being adapted into these multiple things. And that I guess it's some sort of moneymaker. I mean, the original actually made quite a bit of money. This one, it cost $10 million to make, but Apple bought it for 25 million at Sundance. That was a record at the time. So it's like this story's resonating in in that way that it's becoming universal and and I well, agree like, with you that we're going to get better films about the general idea of uh, people with hard of hearing who are deaf and those kinds of more general stories, but this particular story is resonating with people, yeah, which well, is interesting. I mean, to say we had a very similar conversation when we watched The Father and Supernova back to back, you know. Yeah. We saw we saw one film that we thought prolifically ca- encapsulated that particular illness in mm. that situation, uh, not not so, whereas you know, and we will find a film that quintessentially encapsulates the dynamic of living in a family with you know audio, um, audible hearing you know loss or 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 deafness and 
um, someone living amongst that. Like this mm. probably won't be the first time. And it's like it's like every uh, element of cinema or the other. It's really good when these things get seamlessly integrated into films without even like mention of them too. Because yeah. then we're exploring it in a different dynamic, you know. Well, even to that point where, like, Sound and Metal does it better because we're following the protagonist who is the one that's hard of hearing. And with the exception of maybe a total, a grand total of 90 seconds of screen time, this story is focusing on the one person who doesn't have the disability. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I know some people might point at that and be like, well, you know, this isn't real representation because we're still focusing on, you know, we're victimizing the one person who's not deaf in this family. I get that argument. Um, but to your point, I think we will see more attempts, much like the father, that really dwell into what it's like to have that condition. Yeah, I, I do think, her, unfortunately, it's like everything. It's like her persecution. Her biggest plights and frustrations that are warranted actually come from her family in this film. Because mm. the world around her, um, the judgments and sort of persecution that she undergoes at school by these stereotypical non-existent bullies really yeah um are very They're like ham-fisted and ham-fisted. yeah contrived i mean the her talking funny because like the scene with the teacher where she do yeah that's a that's a strong scene that like been i'm not cool to explore I, yeah i'm not i'm not saying that kids wouldn't have been mean to her at some point in time but in a contemporary 21st century environment that would have been nipped in the bud pretty quickly like a younger kid that's not really having that empathetic or sympathetic understanding but at her age the age of 17 18 it would it would have been long past that point she may not have a lot of friends because she's become incredibly introverted and self-conscious because of her situation i'm okay yeah. with that yeah but well the, she does say that that she was bullied when she was young and she's shy now she does yeah, but say she's still that. getting actively bullied that's true but to that point we we think that's kind of dumb that she's still getting bullied yeah. because that, yeah there's no reason there would be no reason for her to be like that because that's just not how high schools sort of work in most cases it's a very it's a it's that classic safe hollywood disposition which is not well I, th- I think it just would have made more sense if they had honed in on that the fact that yeah when she was young obviously she grew up in a family that doesn't speak quite right and are doing sign language. So yeah, it makes sense that when she goes through school, she has a phase of, of learning how to speak properly amongst other people who do speak commonly. Not knowing if she's got a good voice because no one's been able to reinforce it in her house or because she hasn't had a lot of friends. The only person... Uh, she's only really got one friend and, you know, she's kind of busy in this film, getting with her brother. <laughs> uh, she's kind of busy. <laughs> oh, goodness. But, yeah, look, yeah. it's... That's Rin, like... I just I think that was all there in the subtext, and they could play with that more, as opposed to just having a scene where some random person says she smells the magic. It's yeah. like really you didn't need that. The magic of know. scholarships, Jake. <laughs> get all the get all the povos into university. Yeah, look, I think at the end of the day, and we talked about it, this is a sweet film, maybe sweet to a fault in some extent, and that it still pulls at your heartstrings. I remember I was leaning towards a four star at the end because when I first saw it, this is emotional, and I'm feeling emotionally by the music that she's it's singing a strong the ending. Relation- yeah the it's relationship a- is with the family it's gr- it works it's great it's a very strong ending um but it's it's and it's a perfectly adequate consumable mm. film but is like, it best picture that's it i i think it kind of i think people wouldn't be so hard on green book if it didn't win best picture and i think code is going to suffer the same fate in the long run yeah i think so yeah i mean people are going to look at this and be like like was this really the best film of 2021 
well, think it, I've, I'm glad that it exists. I think it could be... See, I don't like just saying it could be better. It chose to be the kind of film that it is, stylistically yeah, and tonally, and that's fine. It's just... it. I'm trying to think... Because at the end of the day, the Academy voted for this film. They did. And my understanding, based on the fact that it only had three nominations in Adapted Screenplay uh, for Best Supporting Actor and then, of course, Best Picture... The fact that it only had three nominations, but won all three of them, and had the momentum that it did, it must have picked up traction at the very last second. And I pulled up some t- statistics as well. This is the first clean sweep, as in it won everything it was nominated for, since Return of the King in 2003. Took, granted, that was nominated for a lot more than just three Oscars, I'm pretty sure. And the other one is that this is the first Best Picture winner ever, keep in mind, ever, to win without having a director or editing nomination. That tells me that this got some very last minute traction in the in the very last month mm. that it just it went on to well destroy the areas that it was involved in. Yeah. And it's crazy. And it's like Dune won six Oscars and all the technical categories and still outperformed Coda in a lot of ways. But Yeah, I would but I would yeah. say Dune is a better film. <laughs> I mean Dune is much more of like a big epic self-serious scaling film i think it's just sort of like but even if i was to compare this to like contemporary dramas and stuff so yeah that smaller scale stuff i think there were better films in the last year I just, yeah well that, um, that's fine and again this is all opinion based i really do think Academy, but... it's underpinning what it has it going for it is the fact that it's exploring a unique dynamic that most western audiences have not been subjected to sure and that understanding is, or wanting to learn or gain understanding on that, um, whether that's a, you know an empathetic or sympathetic discourse, is what draws people to films like this. And I think inherently that's why it did done so well. Yeah, I just I think it's all very fascinating, and I I think it's going to come down to the wrong side of history for Best Picture. Not that it's a, a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I think it does a lot of what it's trying to do very well. I just wish it... It's adequate. I think yeah. it's just so adequate. Like, it's just, like, good. Next. Mm. And I think that's why it will, when you look back on it, and be like, oh, was that Best Picture? Like, wow. <laughs> well, when you look at Best Picture, you, you want to look at films that are, like, technically marvellous, uh, daring in its themes and its narrative, something that you're not expecting. Something like Titan, which that wasn't even nominated within its own category for international film, but, like, that film is so, so daring. And, like, the audiences have to, like... I remember my review for that film was I was slowly curling into a bowl while watching that film. And it's not for everyone, but I think those are the kinds of films we should be putting on a pedestal, or even the worst person in the world. Like, you you can actually compare the worst person in the world to Coda in, in some ways, but I think the worst person in the world is so much more subtle and interesting in the things that it's doing. Hmm. And you're right. I think Coda is just so very safe and fine and sweet that it. I'm glad that it exists, but it. it I think winning the Oscar for Best Picture is really gonna. It's gonna stale people's excitement because now a lot of people, I think, including yourself, are gonna watch it being like, "This is what this is." Yeah. There's. Is there not more to it? And I think that's a shame, but it's a complicated situation. I really well. think. Mm. Coda is currently out on Apple TV. Oh, well, what's your what's your highlight scene? Oh, like? highlight, sorry. Yeah. Um, you have the, one? <laughs> the, last, the last scene. Okay. I really like the Joni Mitchell uh, number. It's actually really well performed. Yeah, yeah. Very prolific. Nice cultivation. 
I would probably say it is also the scene prior to it when she's having a one-on-one with her father and he's trying to read the lips and is prolifically moved by when she's singing to him. Yeah. No, that's very sweet. That, that whole like third act is really sweet. It's a very strong finish. Minus to be in, like I alluded to earlier, the scene where she point blankly asks her mum, like, do you wish I was deaf? And her answer is essentially yes. And I think that's a cool little dynamic to explore. And it's something... I did write this. Let me pull up my review of Coda really quickly. I hope I can pull it up really quickly. But I wrote something at the end in regards to a feature film I want to do on autism, which, of course, I have autism. And it, it's not similar. You you know what the story is, the general story mm-hmm. of that film is. They want to write, but here we go. This is my review. At the end of my review, which I wrote back in August, I said... I talking about that specific scene and I love the fact that the unconditional love that a family member is meant to have for another family member can be tested by external factors like the fact that one is deaf and one is not. And I did say, I hope to achieve something like this with my film about autism someday. And in particular, the fact that they may be people within a certain family, some that have autism, some that don't, and that it almost it might actually be more isolating for the person who doesn't have it than the person who does within the core family. And I thought it was really interesting. Very spicy. Yeah. Well, like I said, Code is currently out on Apple TV. Uh, subscribe if you dare. Take on the platform. <laughs> buy an iPhone so you get a year for free. Yeah. Actually, no don't worries. buy an iPhone. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Don't well, buy an iPhone. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Very little. In fact, the only things I was able to pull from streaming were from Netflix couple of things like Return to Space, which is a documentary that follows Elon Musk and SpaceX engineers' two-decade mission to send NASA astronauts back to the International Space Station, revolutionize space travel. I said space a lot just then, didn't I? That was a lot. I know. And unlike Apollo, Apollo 10 and half, I mean, that's another thing I'll say about Apollo 10 and half, is the exploration of the time and place of Houston late 60s and in America in general, and how, how obsessed with space travel they were as a nation. It doesn't go that far into the hole. It was all just for, you know, to beat the Russians. It's all sort of ingrained in the world that Richard Linklater is creating. But to bring it back to this, which, again, is a more contemporary documentary about the real world, space travel, more contemporary space travel. Number one, I hope this documentary isn't like the Seafarers one from Kubrick, which was basically just propaganda. (laughs) It's a documentary. It's going to be like, Elon Musk. Everyone loves Elon Musk. He's the greatest man in the world. I don't want the documentary to be that, but it also sounds a little... That's a little bit like that. We'll see. Just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. So that comes to Netflix. You also got Metal Lords, which sees two misfit teens devote themselves to metal, attempting to win Battle of the Bands, and be worshipped like gods. It's a little Bill and Ted S there, isn't it? That is quite. Very exciting. Now, coming to cinemas this week. It's actually a big week. But I'm going to spoil it right here. We're not going to do any of these films. No. No, we're not. We're just going to start with Fantastic Beast, The Secrets of Dumbledore which is the third installment of the prequel spin-off franchise and further explores the war between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Um, does anyone give a shit? Yeah, I was going to say, is anyone going to watch this? Who cares anymore? Like, I dude, don't... Dude, this is the third film in what's meant to be a five-film franchise that started in 2016. And that first film, I watched it, and all I was like, I just kind of want to watch Harry Potter again. <laughs> and then the second film was bad. Yeah, I have, not seen the I have not seen the second one. Ah, it was, oh, 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 man. Who cares anymore? I'm sorry, you know. I like the Harry Potter thing they did a few months ago, the 20th anniversary thing. That's cool. And the new game, uh, the something of Hogwarts, Return of Hogwarts, 
something something some open world Hogwarts game. Oh, okay. That looks good. It looks good. But who cares anymore? Yeah, I can't can't <laughs> say it's uh it's for me. No, exactly. We also got The Lost City, which sees Sandra Bullock play an adventure novelist and Channing Tatum as her book's cover model Alan. And when she's kidnapped, Alan is determined to prove that he can be the hero and treks the jungle to rescue her. This looks more Uncharted than Uncharted was. <laughs> <laughs> it actually sounds more Uncharted than Uncharted was. I know, exactly. There's an actual adventure going on. Do, it it do, sounds do, like a bit of fun. Do, do, do. Yeah, who knows? It might be alright. Who knows? Optimism. Speaking of who knows, Ambulance is the new Michael Bay film that covers a hijacked ambulance and a high-speed chase, which contains Jake Gyllenhaal, his adoptive brother, a wounded cop, an EMT worker, and 32 million in stolen cash. Um... Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing for that. Yeah, exactly. Nobody has to know. Sees a middle-aged man lose his memory after suffering from a stroke, and his caretaker falsely tells him that they were secretly in love beforehand. Ooh, that's a bit spicy. That is a bit spicy. Yeah. She might get cancelled, though, if people find out. You know, you don't want to know. And finally, <laughs> and it actually low-key pains me to say that we're not going to be covering this next week. That's okay. We'll watch this film on our own time. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Previews from this Wednesday, the 6th of April at Event Cinemas, and the Saturday, the 9th at Luna Essex and Outdoor. Not Leaderville, interestingly enough. She's an unlikely hero who must channel her newfound powers during an interdimensional rupture. I am so bloody excited for this film. From the Daniels. Who I'm sorry, we don't get to watch it next week. That's okay. It was actually my suggestion that we hold on this, because, again, previews on Wednesdays and Saturdays, it's like... Yeah, it's a little like let's wait till it opens wide on the fourteenth. We'll cover it. But I'm oh my god, I'm so excited for this film. As a four point six on Letterbox right now, that's like parasite numbers. That's Dude, pretty crazy. This film is exploding. I'm hearing nothing but immaculate things about it, and it's from the ah, oh, it's from the Daniels. Ah, oh, this is so good. I'm excited, Zeke. But we're not watching it next week. We're not watching it next <laughs> week. That was the most <laughs> intense build up to something we're not watching next week. <laughs> Oh god, yeah, that's that's true. But Jake, yeah. what are we watching next week in the show, Zeke? We're watching the last waltz. Object is to keep your balls on the table and knock everybody else's off. <laughs> Way of life. I couldn't uh, live with 20 years on the road. I don't think I could even discuss it. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it the last waltz. Such a night. Martin Scorsese's documentary intertwines footage from the band's incredible farewell tour with probing backstage interviews and featured performance from Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, and other rock legends. It's a bit spicy. Yeah, so Zeke, this is one of your favourite films of all time. This is. I think this is in my top 20. Yeah, you gave it a five-star review on Letterboxd. Not many five-starers out there. Wowzers. So, no, I think this is probably one of, if not my favourite documentary of all time. Yeah, but Damn. it's from 1978. Wow, so this is like 
He like just got off the set of Taxi Driver to direct this film. It's crazy. Wow. It's one of the most prolific nights, I think, in music history, especially in the 20th century. So, um, sort of exploring the paradigms of a band is quite interesting. Mm. Um, very excited to talk about this. Just got added to the latest Criterion Collection edition. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, could be your first, Zeke. Could, could be, be your first. first. Could be my first. So, until then, thank you for joining us. This is the Massage Show Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with The Last Waltz.